Welcome to another episode of the London Talks at Night podcast. Today we're joined on the show by Alex Louise Brown, one of our regular speakers at London Talks at Night. Alex has a pretty interesting story from leaving school at the age of 15, retiring at 32 and acquiring over £2 million worth of property. In this episode we discuss Alex's, Alex's journey, her philosophy towards money and success and how she helps her coaching clients make transformational changes to their lives. We also discuss things like how to find a mentor, um, how to escape the rat race, and the the power in being different, but also being able to connect with other people. That's pretty much it. I really enjoyed recording this. I think you're going to really enjoy listening to it too. So enjoy the show and look out for Alex's next experience on funding. Welcome to the show, Alex. Um, so today we're just going to talk about you and kind of find out a bit more about you and your journey f- from sure. starting out to where you are today. So could you just tell us about, well, I suppose a good place to start is um, why you why you left school in the first place and how that how that came about? Okay, sure. Yeah, that's because it's an interesting one for people. Um, <clears throat> I didn't like school. I hated it. It wasn't I wasn't academic. I just didn't get I didn't get on in school. I was bullied. Uh, we moved a lot when I was a kid, so I was born in Zimbabwe, moved to Switzerland, Reading, Oxford, and then Cardiff. So I changed schools a lot. So every time I was the the different kid in the school. Um, so that was one of the main reasons. Uh, I also I found a lot of school fairly pointless. So I'd be sitting in maths class going, I don't understand the point of this. Like, why? When am I ever going to use? I can't even remember what we were taught, but it was just pointless. And even now, I'm still passionate about that because, you know, if pe- if kids were taught about credit cards and money and property and the things that I know now, the world would be a better place. Um, so I just didn't get it. Uh, and I was also already working. So when I did work experience from school, um, I went into catering because that's where teachers quite often send people who don't know what they want to do. The irony being that if you don't love catering, and love working 18 hours a day for pretty low money, it's actually a really bad profession to go into. So I was already, work- so I did work experience and I got paid 200 pounds, which again, this day and age is nothing, but for a 14 year old 20 odd years ago, 22 years ago now, to get given 200 pounds for two weeks work when everyone else in the class didn't get paid, that was huge. Um, so I kind of got the whole, oh okay, money's quite powerful, because it gave me choices. Um, and a lot of people forget that when they're sort of saying, oh, money's not important or, you know, all of the things we're kind of taught about money. But actually, it's really powerful because you get to choose. So um, I had also a pretty difficult relationship with my dad, who we get on really well now. I mean, we joint venture and property and stuff. So it, it's cool now. But at the time, I was a nightmare teenager. Uh, I still think if I ever have kids and they're half as bad as I was, I'm still in for a rough ride. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, so it's just basically kind of a culmination of all of that stuff. Um, I got offered a job in work experience and I did it and I started earning while I was still in school. And it was basically a chef, um, Mark Fisher, I'll never forget him, who basically said, are you going to stay in school or do you want a job? Because you're good in the kitchen. I was pot washing in an Italian restaurant at the time, but doing a lot of veg prep on the side. And he basically said, you know, you're you're good at this. Why don't you come and come in the kitchen full time? Because he knew I hated school. And that was it. So it was one of those kind of life-changing moments that when you look back, you know, it was life-changing. But at the time, it was just like, yeah, I hate school. Get me out of here. I, I, you know, I'll come and work. Um, 
so that's kind of how I started. And I've always loved food. I mean, my mum always cooked. So I could, you know, by the age of 10, I could bake cakes. It wasn't that it was a new thing. So it just, it just worked. Um, and so I did it, but catering's really hard, really hard. I mean, it's, you see Gordon Ramsay on the TV and it's like that. He's probably more honest than other chefs. Um, so I did it, but I knew it wasn't enough. And I kind of went on this journey of working in better places, moving every probably 10 months, two years to go somewhere better. Ended up working um, for Raymond Blanc by the time I was 18 in his two Michelin star restaurant. Again, I think I was on about 9,000 pounds a year as an apprentice, if not, it might have even been seven for like an 80 hour week. So anyone listening to this who thinks you need loads of money to make money, that's, it's not true. I'm, li you know, I'm living proof of that. You don't have to go out and get a big salary to do what I've done. And I, you know, I didn't, you know, even at 18, I was still only earning seven, eight, nine thousand. Um, and I just, there was just something in me that knew it wasn't going to be enough to do catering. And I can't explain the exact kind of moments, but I knew that I needed something else. So when I was 22, I came back to Cardiff, um, bought my first house and ended up running, a, I was running a pub, like a gastro pub. And, and again, at 22, it's like super young, but I'd been in kitchen since I was 15. So I've got seven years of 80 hours a week, which is like 14 hours, 14 years of any other you know, profession if you're working a 40 hour week. Um, and again, another tiny incident that again, you think oh, at the time it was nothing, but the neighbors were really difficult people and it wasn't worth the hassle living next to them when we were already, I was running a pub, working 16, 18 hours a day to drive home for six hours to go back again. So I moved above the pub that I was running and rented the house out and that's how it started. I kind of knew that I wanted to start doing rentals, but I didn't expect to do it so soon. So in my head, you know, I've bought my first house. Okay, now I'll start saving a deposit for a house to rent. But actually it happened, you know, much quicker than that. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how the kitchen side of it started. Um, and when I do, when I do, I do talks now in schools um, for the role models program in Wales. So they have a big program to take entrepreneurs into schools to, to say to kids, you know, hey, there's a lot out there. Um, and the first thing I say to them is, don't. Uh, the first thing I say to them is, don't. It doesn't matter what you do. It's about where you're going and what you want and finding your passion, but also figuring out a way to save and make money. Because actually, it doesn't matter what you earn. It's what you keep. And that's the biggest thing that I think why my story, I guess, is important to share because, you know, most people will go, oh, yeah, but you need to earn a certain amount to be able to save a certain amount. Uh, and it's just not true. How come you were so good at save, saving money from the start? It wasn't necessarily that I was good at saving money, um, but some of the biggest things that I think people don't do are... They spent, so I never went out and got the car. You know, like everyone wants the car, right? Or everyone wants the big house. So it wasn't, it wasn't that I saved loads of money. I just didn't spend loads of money. So there'll be people listening to this going, oh yeah, well, you know, it's all right for you. You lived in Wales. I mean, you can still buy a house in Wales for 50,000. So I get there are people listening to this in London who, you know, it's different. But again, I didn't live in Cardiff. So an example of how I did it, 
when I bought my first house, I was looking at houses in Cardiff and they were 112, 120,000 tiny three bed terraces, but needed completely gutting. So we'd need another 30 or 40,000 spending on them. And I just wasn't prepared to overstretch myself at that point. And again, bear in mind, we're going back, you know, 15, 16 years. Yeah, so price, you know, prices have changed. Those houses are probably worth four or 500,000 now. Um, I moved outside of Cardiff, quite substantially outside of Cardiff, a good 40 minutes drive. Um, and the house that I bought was worth, I think it was 50 or 55,000. And it was end of terrace, big three bed with a huge garden and done. So I didn't listen to what everyone else or what society says about you have to look good and you have to live in the right area and you have to have a certain car. I did the what can I what can I afford right now? What can I manage? I'd rather be in a house that I own than renting a you know high flying apartment in Cardiff Bay that looks good because actually over time and this is what people forget over time if you do the right stuff with money and with job and you don't worry about what people think the looking good comes later because now and I don't say this in a showy off way maybe to some people just to say like to prove a point but I got to retire at 32 because I didn't worry about what people thought when I was 22. Does that make sense? And there's a lot of kids out there worrying about what everyone thinks and getting their first car. But instead of buying, you know, a little old banger that will get them to A to B regardless, they go out and get the brand new lease that costs them or their parents a couple of hundred pounds a month. And at the same time say, I haven't got any money to save up for a deposit on a house. It's 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 almost like we're we're trained or we're yeah. marketed to want these certain things, and you were just you were just like actually, I don't need that right now. Yeah. It's not it's not that important yeah. for me, you know. Yeah. Because I get to now buy the stuff that I want forever with income that comes in from rental properties, and you know there's a, there's all different ways of investing. People can do it with savings and with shares. They can build a business that gives them them an income. You know, everyone's got to find their way, which is the other thing I say when I speak to my clients is I don't have a strategy. I don't say this is what I did, this is what works because it's different for everyone. But the bit that does work for everyone that's an important is to stop feeling this huge pressure to do and be and look good when actually you feel like crap. You know, because that's the reality. Most people who have got the stuff, when you sit down with them and have a cup of tea and look into their eyes and go, yeah, but hey, do you know what, how are you? They're miserable. Like, really miserable. In fact, some people, you know, they're, like, close to tears most of the time, living miserably. But if you look at the Facebook page... Yeah, they look amazing. Like, look, life's so good. I go on three holidays a year. But it's not real. No, no. And And it's that kind of unsustainable kind of consumer thing of buy this stuff, you'll feel good. It's no different to take this heroin, you'll feel good. You know, I know that's like that's a big comparison, but that's all it is. It's just an addiction. Buying stuff and looking good is just an addiction. You know, and there are different levels. Some people have coffee every morning, you know, five or six of them to feel good so they can get to work. And some people, you know, buy the big house and the big car. And then there are other people who are, you know, doing hard drugs and alcohol and cigarettes and all of it. And all of it is just about feeling good in the short term right now. But in doing that, we lose feeling good. For have you know yeah. for the rest of our lives. So it's like thinking long term as opposed yeah. to yeah, short term. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. Um, you mentioned something in your last talk with us. You said um, something about money being like energy. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. could you please expand sure. a bit on that? Okay. Some people think that's a bit woo-woo. Um, so it, money goes where, it, and I, I've done this recently on a boot camp with some of my clients, money goes where it feels safe. Okay, so if a person just if a person just spends money and doesn't take care of it, they're not going to get more of it. So money's a very physical sign of how someone is doing in the sense of, and I'm not talking about, you know, people can go out there and they can push and work hard and have willpower and earn great money, but I'm talking about sustainable wealth, yeah? So everyone can go out and push for a certain amount, get a good job, but ultimately if, it, if, if it's not right, they will find a way to then kind of self-sabotage. So on an energetic level, it's just a very visual um, sign about how someone's doing. And again, I don't mean I don't mean the surface stuff like, oh, look at him, he's got a nice car. I mean the show me someone's bank statement, and I'll tell them how, you know, how they're managing their money. It's not about what they buy. Again, it's about what are they keeping? How is it sustainable? Are they investing? And the people that really start to get good around managing money and being boundaried around it they get more money because actually the better you get with money the more you get but you have to do it first with the small stuff I think I said in the talk about the whole if someone gives you a gift and they've spent a lot of time and energy to to prepare that gift for you and they give it to you and you kind of you just put it on the side to open later or you disregard it or you don't really think it's important that person's not going to give you a gift like that again because they're not going to feel you know like it was worth it and money and energy in the universe is kind of the same. If we disregard the small amounts of money, so every time people just don't value even one pound or five pounds, we're not going to get the bigger sums. Because if we don't care about or manage well the small amounts, we're not going to get given the big amounts. I remember reading the guy that started Walmart, Sam Walton, his like okay. his like autobiography. And like his friends would be embarrassed by him because he would like he would spot like a penny across the street and he'd walk over and he'd like pick up the penny. Sure. And he was just like because he looked after the, yeah. the small things, yeah. you know. T. Harvecker in his seminars, um, I think they're millionaire mind intensive. They're very good actually for people who have kind of know they've got stuff going on with money and they want to sort it out. It's a, a three day course that is is useful. Um, he says that uh, you have to literally do what what the guy from Walmart did. I don't know even if that's where T. Harvecker got it from, but he's like, when you get your paycheck, actually, you know, kiss the check or kiss your bank statement and, you know, kind of look up to the sky and say thank you. Because again, most of us kind of, a lot of people, look at their paycheck and go, oh, is that all? You know, again, just disregarding that 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 10,000, whatever their monthly salary is, because just looking at it going, oh, it's not enough. So just being completely ungrateful for what they've got. So they're not going to get more of that if they're not grateful for it. So that picking up a penny like that is absolutely brilliant. I would say to anyone, um, if they look at rich or, or what they perceive as rich people, so wealthy people, so uh, the, the best example, you know, someone getting out of a really nice car, if they look at that person and they're envious or jealous or kind of angry or just, oh, look at them, it's okay for them, guess what? They're never going to be that. So in a lot of people, they look at that wealth and really want it, but at the same time, they despise it. Well, you don't, you can't have something you despise. You're, like Your being is never going to really go after that, even though you think you want it. Your being's never going to go after that 
if you despise it. Does that make sense? But people don't make the connection. So they're there, you know, going, oh, well, it's all right for him because he's got money or, oh, look at them. Who do they think they are? But if they think that way, then they're never going to actually get there. So one of the things that T.R. Becker says is when you see a clearly wealthy person, go over, the, go over to them and actually thank them and say thank you for being a really good example um, of attaining wealth. How many people are going to dare to go out and do that? I don't know, but I guarantee you the people that do, their world will change. Because even if at the beginning it feels kind of clunky and they feel fake doing it, actually they'll start to notice like, oh, actually, yeah, it is kind of good because wealthy people get to give lots of money to charity and do a lot of good. Yeah. Does that make sense? And then the opposite of that is people go, oh, yeah, but there's loads of, you know, really dodgy people out there with who have loads of money and they, they don't give anything to charity. But they were dodgy and mean anyway, just because they've got loads of, you know, just because they're dodgy and mean with more money. It wasn't the money that made them dodgy and mean. They're just dodgy and mean, just like there are nice rich people and there are nasty rich people. But there are nice poor people and nasty poor people. We have this thing in society where it's like there's there's been headlines in the past. Oh, I'm I'm poor, but at least I'm, you know, at least I'm good. Well, why can't you be rich and good? So you, you see the insinuation. For sure, for yeah. sure. So you do a lot of coaching work with clients, right? And I take it you work with them on money as well. Yeah, they usually come to me for money. Um, you, you can't just work on money and not anything else. So the best description is someone who goes to someone who's really overweight, and they go to um, a dietitian or a sports personal trainer, and they're like, "I want to lose weight. I want to lose weight," and they want to do it with willpower alone, and they just want a strategy. Um, that strategy will never work because there's a reason that they're overweight. There's stuff going on that's underlying. Until I worked with someone, I wouldn't know what it was. But if that PT or that dietitian doesn't deal with why they're overeating, they'll never lose weight. It's why people are in Weight Watchers for like years, decades. They're, they're in there forever, but it, they don't ever actually lose the weight or they yo-yo up and down because they have willpower for a few months and then actually all, all the other stuff kicks in. So... I do work with people about money, but it ends up being about everything because you can't, money's exactly the same as weight. If there's money, if it's not working, willpower's not going to do it. Um, and I think it, I'd be doing my clients a disservice if I just went, yeah, yeah, like just do this strategy here and it'll work and you'll be fine and then send them off on their way, knowing full well that the world doesn't work like that. We, we all want to like scratch at the surface and we never want to get to the root of the issue, you know, yeah. but that's really what we've got to do. Yeah, and a lot of people do. It's really scary, right? Yeah, for sure. Like, if I say, you know, and it, there's levels about when people are prepared to deal with stuff, you know, but you can't, you can't deal with money without dealing with relationships and boundaries and how do you get on with your parents and all of that stuff, you know, it, you just can't. Um, and people that only want to deal with, like, they only want a strategy to get rich, they actually, they don't even come and see me. Because if they're too scared to look, they won't, they just won't want to, they won't want to see me, if that makes sense. Yeah. The people that really want to deal with money and genuinely want to find a way, they're the kind of people that work with me. Do you notice any uh, noticeable differences in people that actually make progress with you and people that just, you know, people that just don't? Is there, like, okay. is it characteristics? Is it attitude is it everyone's different and a lot of people 
they're not going to want to hear this. There'll be people who are probably listening to me and you talk right now and they'll even turn off this podcast because they're like, oh, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that it's a journey. I don't want to hear that it's hard work. But everyone's different. Like, we've all had a different childhood. We've all had a different life. We've all had different experiences. And all clients make progress. But I have some clients that in one session and one property deal become financially free. And I have others that... You know, it takes them a few years and they've got a lot of stuff to work out and they may need to go and get other help. You know, they may need to go on a 12-step program or, you know, see a psychiatrist or whatever. You know, I can't do all of it. I do my bit and then I know where, you know, where they need kind of more help. Um, And everyone's progress is different as well. Some people, you know, will fly really quickly because they just had a couple of niggles that, you know, were not quite right and a few tweaks Whereas other people have got some really deep work to do. You know, they've got they've got some big stuff going on. Um, and in a world where we're all supposed to be like really happy on Facebook and everything, it's it's so fake. And the more we pretend to be happy, the longer it takes to be really happy, if that makes sense. So yeah. there's no there's no kind of fixed um, there's no fixed way of just being successful. Um, and Get rich quick schemes are a lie. That's a funny word, successful. To you, what's, you know, how do you define that? So success is whatever that person's dream is and achieving it. So for some people it might be having kids. For some people it might be getting a specific car. For some people it might be living on a desert island, never speaking to another human being. It's unusual because we're tribal creatures, but you get the idea. Like there's no... There's no definition of success, which is another problem with society now, is that we think, or we're told, or we tell each other, I don't, I'm not even sure how it works, because um, there's no us and them, you know, there's no like bad advertising guys out there who are trying to make us all buy this stuff. We, we are the advertising people, so everyone buys into it. Um, so society kind of judges success on money, yeah? yeah? And like wealth, and have you got the big car? And we all... We all judge to a certain extent, and there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with judging. Like judging will help you decide whether something's safe or not. So this is the other thing that gets really conflicting. People are told like, oh, you shouldn't judge, you shouldn't judge, but our brains are receiving God knows how many million trillion bits of information every second, and we have to make judgments. We have to make judgments. Is it safe for me to walk down that street? You know, there are criticizing judgments that are unhelpful, but there are judgments we also need to do. But when we're judging ourselves and others harshly about wealth, we're not dealing with true success. So again, if we're judging ourselves really harshly, going, oh, well, success means this, 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 but actually we just want to go and, you know, do something completely different. I mean, look, if you look at artist types really struggle with this, because there's this kind of perception that you can't make money if you're an artist, because it's going against your creative side. Well, that's just a lie. Um, but it's understandable how it happens. So again, there's no, you know, what does success mean to you, for example? And do you even know yet? I don't know. I, I really like the quote from, uh, I think it's Bob Dylan. He says something, uh, he says, a man is a success if he gets up in the morning mm-hmm. and he goes to bed at night and, and in between he does what he wants to do. Mm-hmm. I like that, you know, yeah. and I think it's different for everybody. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And it, And it's about... Did that person really do what they wanted to do, not what their parents thought they should do or society thought they should do? You know, is it really they genuinely go to bed at night feeling good? 
it's very easy to underestimate, um, especially living somewhere like London, just how powerful the marketing and the advertising is and just making making us stuff what we yeah. don't need and then yeah. whenever we actually get the stuff we think we'll be happy but then yeah. it just goes away. Yeah, you know? yeah sure. I mean, to, to put this to for, like you and to just anyone listening, I do not read mainstream media. I just don't do it. I don't listen to the radio. I don't listen to the news. I don't buy newspapers. I certainly don't buy magazines which are basically full of body shaming even if they're, you know, Proposedly expensive magazines that you know have good literature in them. They're they're all in one form or another, kind of making us feel inadequate. I mean, that's that's all marketing is, right? Make someone feel inadequate, give them the thing that stops them feeling inadequate. That's it. That's all an advert is. Yeah. Yeah. So if you don't look at the adverts, guess what? You don't get made to feel inadequate because you can't be surrounded by that all the time and not, you know, not feel it. I mean, there's powerful studies done on how impactful advertising is so the only way to kind of deal with it is just to not go there I mean to the point where I go on Facebook less and less now and mainly because my newsfeed at the moment is just full of stories about Donald Trump yeah and I, I'm not interested it's not that I don't care about it but we get what we focus on so he's just you know to use that as an example he's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger because whether we focus on the negative or the positive it gets bigger so while we're all focusing on that, we're all ignoring all the good stuff that goes on. So then the good stuff is effectively getting smaller. Yeah? yeah. So yeah, living in London, it's difficult because it's everywhere, but you still have a choice when you go home at night. You know, do you watch the news? Do you watch the adverts? Like I won't watch, t- I don't watch TV. And if I'm watching TV and there's adverts, I, I just, in fact, I watch TV, so it can't even be if I watch TV and there's adverts, I don't watch them. And I specifically, if I want to, it's not that, you know, oh, TV's bad. You know, I love going to the cinema and there are programs that I love. Um, But I'll watch them on iPlayer or something where there's no adverts. Or when the adverts are on, I'll skip them. So it's, it's kind of, we have to take responsibility for what we're inputting into our brains. You know, when when children are growing up, we're very aware that, you know, what they're surrounded by, they're going to become or take on. Well, why is that any different when we're adults? Why do we suddenly, when we become adults, think that if we surround ourselves by all that advertising, it'll be okay? I mean, it's not that... It's just recognising it. It's not even just just going, oh, no, it it doesn't affect me. Because it does, it affects everyone. I feel it. If I go, say, I hardly ever go into Cardiff now like town centre because just shopping malls just aren't my thing and going into a shopping mall is like being surrounded by you're like you're literally standing in an advert of you know a you're inadequate b all of this stuff's going to make you feel better so I just don't do it if I need you know clothes I'll go to my specific clothes shops that I love and buy what I need and leave I don't like browsing around you know not supermarkets but big shopping malls I mean it's how good is that for your self-esteem? Surrounded by all these, you know, size, what is it, four or six models, you know, wearing clothes that just, it's crazy. It really is. Yeah. Um, so you say, like, the, the inputs that are in your life, mm-hmm. whether that's advertising or TV or whatever, mm-hmm. I suppose you're more, con- you're more conscious about what you're taking in. So mm-hmm. you've, you've told me before that you read a book a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, are there any... Are there any books you've read growing up that have kind of had a major impact on your, on just how you've turned yeah. out, I suppose? I didn't get into reading until, 
I don't know, when I was 20, 24 maybe. Um, and they're all, they're not all personal development books, but it's probably 70 to 80% of personal development books. But that can even be, you know, like Richard Branson's story. I can't remember what the book was called, um, but, but just his biography, you know, about what he did. That was an amazing book, you know. Um, Robert Kiyosaki, I love his work. I kind of wish I'd found it earlier because I found it after I'd already bought some houses. I was like, wow, I kind of knew what I was doing, but now I know what I'm doing is right and I can do it better. Yeah. Um, oh, there's so many authors. I think en- not anything in the personal development world, but you could al- you could almost say anything in the personal development world versus you know watching. EastEnders or whatever, I even call it Dead Enders, you know, like versus any of that. And people will find their way because there's there are coaches and people that I love following that other people don't. Like I love Gary Vaynerchuk. I think he's just awesome. His two minute videos are brilliant. He says it exactly like it is. He doesn't mince his words. Fantastic. Other people are offended by him. So, you know, we've all got to find our, you know, find our people to follow. But again, who do you want to follow? Do you want to follow like the cast of EastEnders or Emmerdale or do you want to follow people who have actually done some really cool stuff whether it be you know an artist or a creative or a financial broker or whatever you know I'm really into farming right now so one of my biggest heroes right now is Joel Salatin who's a a farmer in America you know we've got to find our own heroes and then follow them so Joel's written seven books I'm on my fourth one of his now Um, there's no kind of right or wrong but the simplest way I can say to people is you become who you surround yourself with and that's not just the people you work with and see in the street if you surround yourself with three hours worth of soaps in the night time guess who you're going to become yeah Yeah? if you surround yourself by three hours of teaching yourself to cook checking out your bank statements uh, reading some kind of personal development book guess who you're going to become you know it's not it's not rocket science in some ways but a lot of people just don't even realise it. You know, they go home and they just go, oh, I've had a really hard day. I just need to zone out. I hear it so, people say it to me so many times, like, oh, I just need to zone out. I'm so exhausted. But the irony is sitting and watching TV for two, hour, two or three hours actually makes you more exhausted. And it's just escapism. So anyone who does that, I would say, well, what are you doing all day that makes you feel like rubbish? Stop doing that. Like, if, you, if, if you're that miserable by the end of the day, stop doing it. Um... I remember years and years ago, a talk by, and I, I still work with her now, Judy May Murphy, who's a, who's a really good coach. Um, she's, I've worked with her for years now. Awesome, awesome lady. And the reason that I signed up with her way, way back, so I've also, that's the other thing, people, you know, get a coach. If we want to get a job, you know, a new job, or we want to do a certain profession, we go and get training. If we want an extraordinary life, go and get training. You know, go and get a coach. Go and get someone to say, well, this is how you do it. Because for anything else, if you want to learn to drive, what do you do? You get a driving instructor. You know, if you want to get a degree, you go to university. You want a good life? Get a good coach. Um, but I remember her saying to, to the talk that I went to, so this is way back probably when I was, I think I must have been about 22. She said, you guys have got no excuse. She looked all of us in the eye. She's very gentle and very strong at the same time. Um, she's got the kind of strength of Gary Vaynerchuk, but the sort of gentleness of someone completely opposite. But she looked at everyone and she went, you guys have got no excuse. You could go out there tomorrow, do whatever you wanted, 
and this government and the benefit system and actually you guys' taxes would pay for you to live. Like, seriously? I was like, wow, that's so true. Like, we've got no excuse in this country. You know, we've got no excuse. Because even if we fail, we get given a house and food and money and and stuff. There's, there's something there to support us. And people go, oh, well, the benefit system is, is useless and it's not enough money. Go and live in Italy and fail. See how you get on then. Yeah. You know, it's really good here. It really is. The worst case scenario is not that bad. The worst case scenario is you get a house and money to buy food. And yet we go to jobs that we hate because we think we have to because... I don't even know why, actually. When anyone starts to really think about it seriously, it's insane. Like, it's properly insane. So, if there's somebody listening to this and they really kind of want to make a big change in their life mm-hmm. and they kind of feel a bit, like, stuck or mm-hmm. stagnated or at the minute, mm-hmm. what are first steps you recommend? Is it getting a coach? Is it cutting out um, negative influences in your life? What, what, what do you say to someone like that? So, it depends where they are. Because some people are so frozen and so stuck and so traumatised by life or their childhood or whatever that they they need absolute tiny baby steps. You know, maybe they need to get onto YouTube uh, and start watching, you know, inspirational videos. Maybe they need to buy an audio book. You know, just, just tiny small things. But if someone's kind of like, ah, oh, I hate my life. You know, it sucks, but they've got the power and the strength to just be like, I'm done. I need radical change, then absolutely, you know, get a coach, immediately stop watching TV, make sure you're eating really well, make sure you're sleeping really well. And again, it's, I guess it's the same for the person that's really struggling, you know, are they sleeping right? I mean, this is, it sounds so basic, but do you know how many people don't sleep at night? And then they wonder why they, they can't cope. Like if we are in overwhelm, you know, we don't sleep properly, we're not eating right, we're running on coffee and sugar all day, you know, and, and, and white refined carbohydrates. And then we don't sleep at night because we've been on caffeine all day. So we have maybe a couple of beers or a bottle of wine. I mean, the number of people I know that it's just normal to have a bottle of wine every night, just to like come down from the ups that we've had all day to, to yeah. Then start with that. You know, like start with the super basics and it sounds really boring, but it's the basics and the rituals that set everything up. You know, if someone's living on sugar and caffeine and alcohol it, it, you can't you have to start there you know one of the one of the if, if you want to look at kind of if as me as an example I know where my addictions have been you know when I was younger I did a lot of drinking and smoking and some drugs as well to just like deal with life and get away from everything and then I moved into work and work stopped all that because work was the new addiction because it avoided everything, right? It's not, you know, it, it's lovely to go, oh, left school at 15, retired at 32. It's such a lovely, pretty journey. It was so easy. You know, I've done it. I've done it all. I've done drinking. I've done smoking. I've done caffeine addiction, uh, you know, work addictions. I still now, even right now, if I get into kind of stress, which you think, oh, what have you got to be stressed about? You know, you're retired, you've got a property portfolio. Everyone has stress. It doesn't ever go away. It just changes. So my, my immediate reaction to stress is to just work harder. Like, I'm, I, now I realise it, I don't do it so much, but it's still there. So, again, I guess one of the biggest things, we've got to know who we are. Like, who, you know, who's Niall? 
what does Niall do when Niall's stressed? So I used to, I haven't now because I, you know, I, I know what they are, but <clears throat> I used to write lists of behaviours that I'd start doing. I go, oh, actually, hang on, hang on, I think I'm getting stressed here, but I didn't realise it. So did I suddenly start having, you know, three sugars in my coffee and then maybe drinking three or four coffees a day? That's a red flag for me, that something's wrong here. But no one's going to teach you that. Like, we all need to learn our own stuff. Because there are other people who, and probably people listening to this call right now, they're obsessing over what they eat to the point where it's so meticulous and so correct. But that in itself is the opposite scale of, you know, me with three sugars in a coffee and drinking three or four of them in the morning. So it's not about right or wrong or any specific way to do it. It's like, where's the balance? You know, are you going off the scale or is it, is it kind of managed? And I don't mean in a kind of mediocre way of, oh, well, I limit myself to one coffee a day because I know drinking more than that is bad. There's a difference between that and just going, yeah, I just have a coffee a day or I don't drink it at all because I fancy one. Do you see the difference of this like self-restraint and strength of like, no, I don't do that because it's bad versus if I, if I fancy a coffee, I have one. Or I just don't drink coffee because, you know, I know it gives me the shake so I don't bother anymore. Yeah. Makes sense? It does, it does. So you mentioned that you moved a lot about when you were younger. Yeah. Um, what was your was your parents in the military or? Uh, my dad works in um, pest control, but overseas. So um, him and my mum met in Iran. My mum was a nurse, and my dad was was basically doing managing and planning uh, crop spraying in third world countries. So dealing with like cotton crops and all that kind of thing. He then moved into um, dealing it with with pheromones and now actually works for a he's again he's over 70 still working um, out in Tanzania uh, and he's now dealing with kind of the other end of uh, dealing with insecticide treated mosquito nets so that you know kind of business which then just tends to be overseas jobs um, so that's why we moved um, because of his job and actually the reason we moved to Cardiff was because we came back to the UK so that me and my brother could be educated in the UK and he set up his own business and, and basically lost everything. It was just before the massive crash of 19, what are we, 90, the 1990s crash, so I was only 10 at the time. So I don't hugely, I, I don't remember the crash, but I remember the trauma of what it was like to not have money. So yeah. one of my big drivers of property is, I, you know, I never ever wanted to be in that position because it, it's hard. Yeah. Um, and he got a job in Cardiff, which is why we then moved to Cardiff. And what was what was your childhood like? You know, you mentioned, did you say bullying earlier? Uh, yeah, just from a point of view of, and, and it's really interesting. I'm really just understanding it a lot more now. Um, it's really, so whatever we believe our greatest weakness or our greatest success is, or greatest strength, it's the same thing. It's the same sides. It's two sides of the same coin, right? So um, I was particularly bullied in Cardiff when I came to Cardiff because I'd gone from an all-girls private school in Abingdon to, to an inner city comp. Um, I was just different. You know, kids basically, you know, whatever it, whatever it may be, whatever ism we put on the end of it, it's just someone's different so they get picked on, right? Um, so I was the posh English kid in the inner city Welsh school. Okay. Easy target. Yeah, there's, there's nothing specific. And it's just, it's no different to the overweight kid or the ginger kid or the, you know, it's just because something's different. Yeah. And we pick on things that are different. And when kids are doing that, you know, they're not realising uh, what's going on. 
Um, so it was mainly it was mainly there. But even I think before that, you know, I moved from Zimbabwe, which is a predominantly black country. Uh, vet, amazing life, you know. We had huge gardens, swimming pool. Basically, you know, I was there till I was four, so basically spent, you know, most of my time in a nappy outdoors, you know, in a swimming pool or whatever. Um, but so you have to think sunshine, hot, predominantly black country, pretty happy. I mean, easy life. If you've got wealth in Africa, you can you can live a very very nice life. Um, <clears throat> to Switzerland in the winter. Everyone's white. Everyone's speaking a language I don't understand. It's really cold. There's snow. You know, a four-year-old doesn't understand any of that. I can sit here as a 36-year-old adult and go, well, you know, yes, it was traumatic. But to a four-year-old, that's like, you know, that's huge. Um, so again, it, it, there was, it, there was no, not bullying there, but it was just the different, you know, the odd one out, the different one. The irony now, which is why I say that your strengths and your weaknesses are the same thing, that now is a strength to me. I can walk into a room full of strangers and it doesn't bother me because I've, I've done it all yeah. my life since I was like four and then seven. So then another culture shock, Switzerland, international school. So after the initial shock of, you know, Swiss speaking and, and all of that, actually really nice life to Reading in, again, it just, just, just different. Nothing like wrong with any of the things, but just, I mean, how different could you get? The irony being we moved to the UK because my parents wanted me to be in school in the UK. So they thought they were doing a really loving thing. Actually, horrible, like horrible. I don't even remember living in Reading because it was that traumatic. All I know is that my parents said that the teachers used to find me in the school ground crying, but they didn't know why, you know. But that stuff shapes us. So now I can come and do a talk for you with 50 people or however many people or sit here and talk to you. And it doesn't bother me in the slightest. Yeah. And I'll happily turn up wearing something different or being different. It's almost like that now is my strength. I don't want to fit in now. Whereas yeah. when I was a kid, that was like death. Yeah. So we're, we're tribal, you know? Yeah, yeah, we're tribal. We're meant to fit in. We're meant to all get on. But I don't, I don't know what it is. It's, there's, there's also a huge power in being different but connecting with people. Because actually, once you get past the what someone wearing or how does their accent sound, I mean, it was that ingrained that my accent would even change when I was speaking to people because I so wanted to fit in when I was a kid. I mean, when I was in Cardiff, within a year of living in Cardiff, I had a Cardiff accent, which, I mean, it happens to people. You know, it, it's kind of, again, it's a natural, everyone's trying to get on and fit in. Mm. But it was huge for me because I was desperate to fit in. Whereas now, actually... I don't want to because actually it's kind of cool being different because then the other people in the room everyone's different in some way and actually everyone wants to be the same but everyone wants to be really individual for sure and it's it's like I think we almost overvalue comfort in our society and when I think back my own life it's the things the shocks the things that have been really tough that have yeah. been the most beneficial in the yeah. long run you know it's weird but yeah. just the way it goes you know yeah. Yeah, and one of the most dangerous, dangerous places to be is comfortable. Yeah. Like I have, they don't often sign up with me as clients because they're comfortable, but I'll meet them out at networking events or just out and about, you know, and they find out what I do and they're kind of, you know, they're like, yeah, I'm not really happy. But as soon as I delve a bit deeper, they're not happy, but they're so comfortable that you almost like adversity kind of forces change. Whereas comfort is really hard to move out of because your brain's going, 
but hey guys, everything's cool here. You know, like we're not in danger. We're not gonna die. Why change it? Why do something different? Yeah. That's that's all it is. Definitely. So last time we spoke, you mentioned that you were going out to see Joel Salton in America. When are you going out there? I am hoping to, but at the moment I'm having massive visa issues. So that's gonna be an interesting that I'll reword that. It's an interesting challenge at the moment and it's an interesting uh, learning for me. So again, you know, we never stop. We never stop learning, right? Yeah. So when I saw you last, it was like, yep, I'm going to America, it's going to be fine. And now actually the powers that would be are going, no, it's not fine. You're going to have to deal with that. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting time. Whether I go or not, we'll see. Um, it's, I think it's very interesting the way, um, the way you phrase things. Like, most people would say, oh, that's, it was a complete disaster, you know, it's, yeah. it, um, it's just, it's fell through or whatever, but you're still looking at it in a, in a positive way. And yeah. the first time I met you, you actually, I asked you, how was your train down from Cardiff? And you were like, oh, it was like four, it was four hours, it was delayed or something. Yeah. And, and I was like, oh, that's terrible. And you were like, actually, it was pretty good, you know, it was, give me some time to chill out. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, you, you just have a good way of looking at things, yeah. you know. People can practice that. I don't think that comes, I am, so I am probably naturally positive in some ways. Um, although actually, if you'd have asked me years ago, I'd have said, no, I'm not. People think I'm happy, but I'm miserable inside. Um, practicing gratitude. So again, anyone listening is like, oh, what can I do right now? Just practicing gratitude for stuff is so powerful. Um, even to the point where like, you get up in the morning and most people go, oh, I've got nothing to be grateful for. My life sucks. And it's like, there's a perspective issue there because if you gave your life to someone in a third world country, they would think it rocked. So there's, you know, there's a there's a perspective issue there. Um, but actually, one and this is the same with like appreciating the small amounts of money. Once we start appreciating stuff, nothing is that hard. Yeah, but you can that you have to practice that. That doesn't just happen. Like happy people or positive people, they're not just by accident happy. You know, again, I, th I think it's T. Har is it T. Harvecker? It might be Tony Robbins. Anyway, it's a kind of NLP technique um, of you can put a rubber band around your wrist, and every time you have a kind of negative thought or a, you know, I don't want to label it a bad thought because it's not nothing's good or bad. It just is what it is. But you can kind of ping yourself with the with a rubber band to, you know, actually train yourself out of it. But at the same time, you know, if everybody when they first woke up in the morning, had a piece, of a piece of paper and a pen by their bed and they wrote three things down that they were grateful for. And some people go to me, oh, Alex, oh, so, you know, that's such rubbish. You know, what have I got to be grateful for? I'm like, are you lying in a bed? Is it kind of comfy? Is there someone next to you that, you know, you love? Or, you know, do you just like them? You know, have you got a roof over your head? Is the heating on? I mean, I'm talking like you start that basic. Yeah. Because once you start being grateful for that, and it's amazing, people come back to me and they're like, oh yeah, it totally works. You do that three times in the morning, for the rest of the day, you'll start noticing stuff and be grateful for it. Because it trains your brain to look for the good stuff. Yeah, so you get more of whatever you focus on. And it's the same before you go to bed, write down three things that you're grateful for that day. And actually, once you start doing this properly, you just keep expanding out. So you go, okay, in my bedroom or on my bed right now, what am I grateful for? Have I got a nice duvet? And again, if people are going, no, my duvet sucks, buy a different one then. Like, don't accept rubbish. You know, if you're, if you're, like, if you're spending eight hours a day in an uncomfortable bed, you're accepting that for yourself. And it's the same with like gratitude. 
if you are saying, actually, hey, do you know what, I've got, even, and even if it is an com- uncomfortable bed, actually, hey, do you know what, I've got a really uncomfortable bed, but A, I'm in a really lucky position that I can figure out a way, if I don't have the money right now, to go and get the money to buy a new bed. B, God knows how much percentage of population don't even have a bed. And then that same amount of population don't even necessarily have a proper roof over their heads. So we can, like, get grateful. Yeah. You know about the basic stuff. And even if we're ungrateful because we've got an uncomfortable bed, we can get grateful about the fact that we've realised it and we can change it. Yeah. And is, are there any other things that you practice on a daily basis to kind of, for your state of mind? Any other habits? Uh, yeah, loads, all the time. Uh, and they're all really small. And this is the other thing that people think they have to take this massive, huge action and they have to like leave their job to you know follow their dream or whatever. And it's actually, it's a lie. Um, I make sure I eat really well like it's it, it I guess it's setting standards for ourselves so one thing that I was a chef for 17 years and I did a lot of teaching people to cook and cookery demonstrations and talks um, and I say to people if you had a really dear friend or relative or like someone that you admired yeah coming for dinner so like your favorite pop star or movie star or whatever you know everyone's into different things Um, So if it was me, I'd be like, okay, it'd be Jamie Oliver or someone. It wouldn't necessarily be, you know, a movie star. Um, If they're coming to dinner, cook as if if they were coming to dinner or breakfast or coffee or lunch or whatever. Cook like that and then eat it for yourself. Because when you, whatever you eat, when no one else is around, that's you telling yourself what you think you're worth. And again, that's a ritual. So, you know, grabbing a piece of toast on the way out the door and you know not even bothering to put butter on it because you've run out you'd never do that for a guest you just wouldn't so why are you doing it for yourself yeah so it's like these tiny sort of rituals and standards i make sure i drink water you know and lots of it i make sure i go to bed at night i have an alarm that goes off on my phone at nine o'clock in fact i think it went off that night i was doing the talk at nine o'clock basically saying and it literally says relaxing time turn the lights down you know start start chilling um i do things like i make sure i on a daily basis read something or watch it to watch a ted talk for example that you know they're basically the version of you know what i was doing for you right yeah the whole you know find an inspiring talk or watch a youtube video or study something but again it doesn't have to go on for hours so it can be small rituals you know if um if you want to learn a language, do it for five minutes a day. Don't wait and say, oh, in three years' time when I'm not doing this anymore, then I'll learn French. Like, do it now and do it for five minutes a day. Watch a French YouTube video for five minutes a day. Because all of those small things, they add up to be the big things. Yeah. Just like all the small bad habits right now of whether it be leaving the house without breakfast or drinking too much coffee, those are all small things. But they're culminating in someone having a not good night's sleep which culminates in the next day not having a good day you know it's not the big stuff it's the little things um and food and sleep is absolutely the first place to start food and sleep and what comes you know into your brain and who you know what you're focusing on the basics yeah and and again people are like oh so boring i just want to skip that and do the other stuff it's like no you don't get to do the other stuff unless you do the basics you don't get to skip it and if you do somehow manage to trick your way to skipping the basics you know when you hear these stories of like these really successful people that then killed themselves or 
died of a heart attack or you know tragedy happened that's because they skipped the basics yeah. yeah the businessman that dropped out of a heart attack at 50 he skipped the basics because he didn't do basic self-care he just worked and forced his way to success and yeah maybe he got a lot of wealth but he skipped the basics and he had a heart attack you know it's not even it's pretty serious if you skip the basics Sure. You'll get that money if you're yeah, well, what's the point? Or you, you have a lot of money, but you know you don't get on with your family, or you haven't, or actually, you know, you haven't got someone that you love at home at night. Yeah. It doesn't, you know, you can't, you just can't do it. You can't, you can't skip drinking water. You know, anyone who's out there. So there's another thing. If anyone wants like little things, stop drinking pop and soda and diet. And diet. If I hear one more person say to me, oh, it's fine. I drink diet coke. No, it's not fine. It's killing you. I'm not even going to go into the scientific research. It's just bad. You know, 100%. small stuff. One can of soda a day. That's 365 a year. Yeah, that's a lot of soda. It's only a small thing. Um, so just a couple more questions before we finish up, Alex. Um, if, you could, if you could go back and give yourself some advice when you were, let's say... 15, 16, just mm-hmm. starting out on this entrepreneurial journey. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you would say? That's a really interesting and tricky question because it's a bit like the movie Sliding Doors. If I went back and changed everything, then everything else changes. Mm. So um, I would, it, and, I, and you, actually people can do this, so anyone listening that's not 15 <laughs> can actually do this. And there's a certain amount of just I'd have given myself less of a hard time. But at the same time, if I went back and told my 15-year-old self anything right now, she'd tell me to F off. So it's kind of like, it would be really lovely to think that it would work. And and it would be all that, and it's almost cliche, but it's so true. You know, don't worry about so much what people think. Go a bit easy on yourself and other people. Slow down. You know, but again, would the 15-year-old listen? Uh-uh. Anyone out there who's got teenage kids, you know, they know that that's not going to happen. Um, I was, I guess my biggest thing that I'm most grateful for is that throughout my life, whether it has been um, mentors or teachers or parents, there's always been someone there. Mm. You know, the, I think the people are always there. I call them angels. They're, they're always, there's always someone there looking out for me. And, and actually... Anyone who's ever experienced anything when they've been out and about and surrounded by strangers, there's always someone there, you know, who will help if you need it. I mean, human beings are, you know, we're incredibly cruel to each other in some ways. But actually, do you know what? If the shit hits the fan, most people, you know, will step up and help. Um, So, yeah, it's an interesting one. In some ways, I wouldn't tell her anything because actually, you know, I'm super grateful for all of the bad and all of the good because it's got me to here now. And one last thing before we finish is you mentioned there about the importance of like mentors and these kind of people in your life. Mm. How does someone, you know, someone that doesn't ha- have that right now, how do they get someone like that in their life? Okay. Um, people just know when they've found them and they need to know that they'll know. So that's the biggest thing for me. Like, there are people out there that when they, so like when I did the talk for you, they just knew there were, there are a certain people, number of people in the audience who they just, they emailed me, we connected and several of them have had coaching because they just knew I was the right person for them. 
there's no way of mentally thinking about it or finding it. It's just going to the places where people are. And it, and it doesn't even have to be, you know, like I'm specifically, I do coaching now. I kind of, I do it because people kept asking me, not because I thought, oh, I'm going to be a coach. I was finding myself helping people. So then, you know, that's sort of the path I went down. Um, but it's, you know, watching the TED Talks, reading the biographies, find, look at people who have already done what you want to do. You know, it, it's kind of follow curiosity and where you're inspired and go there mm. because there are people who will get me and there are other people who just go oh she's a bit woo I don't get her or you know I, I need I need like hard and fast strategy so then I'm not for them yeah. and it's the same it's the same for anyone at any stage of their life finding a mentor st- just actually saying hey do you know what I could do with a mentor in this they'll show up okay. you know they'll, they'll they will appear you won't know necessarily where they'll come from um, and if it's people living in London or actually any of the main cities there are um, yes groups, which are Tony Robbins offshoot, which are good places to go. It's where I kind of started. Um, some are good, some are bad, but you get to you know see speakers come to your events. I mean, what an amazing thing for a company to do, just like Ted's doing. You know, Funzing are doing. Okay, we're going to get these people to come and talk. Well, you know, anyone listening to this has probably already been on your talk, but your talks. But if they haven't, go to all of them because you never know where you'll find that person. Yeah. You know. With what we're with the London talks tonight, we're basically, we're basically trying to bring uh, like TED style talks, but mm. with the bars and cafes around London. Yeah, we're just making these great ideas accessible to to everybody. Really. Yeah, which is amazing. Like, you have no idea as a company what you do. Like, I know you know what you do, but you don't realize the lives that you've touched. Even just in so, I got recommended to you. You did. You set up the structure for me to be able to talk. I've touched the lives then of the people in the room, but then there's people that I've coached as well. They've then, maybe they've got a friend that then refers me. Like the power of of that, what you guys do, is enormous. Like the just the just the fact that you guys say, hey, look, you know, we can do this as a company, we've got the structure to do this, let's make this happen. It's huge. You have, you have no idea how many people's lives you touch when you do that. And, and you're part of that. It's massive. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool, and you, you never really think that it can have that kind of effect on people, but I guess it does sometimes. Anyway, so where can people find you online, Alex? Um, the best thing for people to do if they've heard this and they think, okay, you know, I, I get Alex, um, they can just email me directly. Um, my email's alexlouise7 at gmail.com, or they can contact you. I think some people have contacted you before. Um, yeah. But the best thing to do is just contact me directly. You know, I have got a Facebook uh, profile and stuff. I don't put a huge amount of stuff online. I tend to, I've, I'm working on a website, but at the same time, I'm not passionate about it, if that makes sense. I'm doing it because I know that people are like, Where, where's your website, what do you do? And it's like, I'm kind of busy doing property and developing and coaching people. And people that get me, they come and find me. And yeah. you know, ones that don't, they find someone else. So. Yes, I, I don't have a massive presence online, um, just because I spend most of my life offline, if that makes yeah. sense. Um, but yeah, they, they can email me or find me on Facebook. Okay, well, Alex, it's been really, really great talking to you. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on, and I hope to have you Thanks on again me. sometime. I'm looking forward to your next talk, too. Thank you. All right.